We are all aware of the ideological movements involving race in our society today. Black Lives Matter movement, critical race theory, and white privilege, to name a few. So how are we as Catholic men supposed to navigate this very delicate and often heated topic? How do we avoid taking a passive or an avoidance or even subservient role and instead bring the love of Christ into the conversation? We are joined today with a great man, a great guest, and a very knowledgeable man to help us navigate this struggle. So stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. And we are very honored and excited to have our guest today, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, with us. And I look forward to introducing him in just a moment. But before we get there, I just want to mention a couple notes. Uh, If you're listening to this on your podcast player of choice, uh, please subscribe. Uh, And if your podcast platform uh, has reviews, I encourage you to leave a review. It really helps uh, the word get out about uh, the podcast and the work that we're doing here to encourage men in their faith. So uh, subscribe, leave a review if you can. And if you've really enjoyed the, the content that we're producing, please consider uh, supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Catholic Gentlemen. Uh, we have some, some great tiers for you there, but also it's just a great community of men of like mind who are um, discussing and and uh, encouraging each other uh, on many topics related to Catholic masculinity. So check that out, patreon.com slash Catholic Gentlemen. It's a great community for you, and it helps support the work that we're doing here. But as I mentioned, we are joined today uh, by the dynamic deacon, Harold Burke Sivers. Uh, and uh, for many of you, he needs no introduction, but if you aren't familiar with him, he is one of the most sought-after speakers in the church today. Uh, He travels across the United States and all over the world, speaking at uh, conferences and workshops and retreats, parish missions, just about anything you can imagine. And and he really wants uh, everyone to know Jesus Christ intimately and to strengthen family life, help people discern the will of God, embrace the sacraments, uh, and especially he has a heart for men. And he's written a book about men, which we maybe talk about later um, but uh, thanks so much for being with us, Deacon Harold. Uh, we're so happy to have you. Thank you, Sam and John. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah, and John and I have both uh, been at events where Deacon Harold has spoken, and man, we can all testify that he brings the fire. Uh, he, he will. He will not uh, let you embrace complacency. He uh, gets you fired up. So, but today we're going to talk about, as John said, a very delicate issue, an issue that is very relevant to the world today, but also one that people struggle to navigate uh, because it seems uh, like there's just polarizations on either side. uh, And it's hard to know sometimes where uh, political angles or motivations end and the truth begins. Uh, And that issue is uh, racism. Uh, And that is something that's been a part uh, of our society, uh, especially in America here for uh, many centuries. Uh, but we, we, John and I felt the heart to bring Deacon Harold on to discuss this, this issue from the perspective of not only an African-American, but an African-American Catholic, and to talk about 
what the church has to say on this issue. So, so kind of just b- before we get to that, though, Deacon Harold, can you just tell us a little bit about how you ended up um, becoming a deacon, how you felt God's call in your life, and how you really um, uh, have have faced this issue, perhaps in your own ministry? Yeah, sure. So um, I was born in Barbados in the West Indies, um, and we're first generation to come to the United States. My mom was the first Catholic in our family. Um, So she was Methodist and became Catholic, converted when she was a teenager. I'm the oldest child of her marriage with my dad. And so I'm actually the first baptized Catholic in our family. Because, of course, my mom came into the church. She didn't have to be rebaptized just confirmation and, and uh, first communion. Uh, so I'm the first uh, baptized Catholic, been Catholic my whole life. Um, some people say, well, you sound Protestant. You know, are you a confident? I'm like, no, I've never been Protestant. And I, I don't sound like a Protestant. I sound like a Catholic who's in love with Jesus. Amen. That's what I sound like. Amen. You know, so, and so like I've that. gone to Catholic schools my whole life, grade school, high school, college, and graduate school. We're all at Catholic institutions. Um, when I was about 10 years old, I felt a, a very strong pull or tug or attraction to the, to the mass. And I remember, um, in fact, we went to mass. My mom, my, my father wasn't Catholic or a man of faith at all. So my mom took us to church and she would sit me on the, in the, in the pew on the aisle, right, right on the aisle. And she would stand next to me. And then my siblings would be on the other side of her because they were typical kids like, you know, pumping each other, throwing Cheerios and stuff. And, uh, but, but I was laser focused on what was going on at the mass. My mom wanted me to stay focused. And mm. I remember thinking, even at that age, 10 years old, there's something really cool going on up there. I don't know what it is, but I like it. You know? And then I got old enough to serve mass and, oh, I loved, loved being on the altar and serving mass. I remember one time in particular, it was my turn to ring the bells. Father O'Connor, who still had the Irish brogue, right, was about to elevate the Eucharist. And I remember thinking, I could totally see myself doing that. Yeah. I I mean, I just had that clear thought. And so when I got to high school, I went to a Benedictine high school run by Benedictine monks, St. Benedict's Prep in Newark. And they had a come and see program. So I did the come and see program all four years of high school. First person in my family ever to go to college. Went away to Notre Dame. Uh, graduated, worked for a year as I was discerning monastic life. Mm. Uh, After my year of discernment, I joined the Benedictines, enjoyed my time there immensely. And then my my mom got sick. My parents were divorced by then. My mom got sick and almost died. And and I'm the oldest. And so I helped my mom with the family when my dad left. And so uh, I left the monastery temporarily to help take care of my mom till she was able to go back to work. Uh, and then I went to a wedding well, those couple of months I was out of the monastery and went uh, and met my wife at a wedding. So didn't go back. <laughs> but but I but I still felt a pull or a tug, you know, that wouldn't go away. And so my wife was in Oregon. So that's how I got from New Jersey to Oregon. And uh, and uh, I that that pull that attraction never went away. And it ended up finding its fulfillment in the, in the diaconate. And so I started the, I was uh, accepted into the diaconate program at 30 years old, which is very young. Um, and it's a, it's a five-year program. So I was the youngest uh, man ever ordained a permanent deacon. 
in the history of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. And uh, I've been a deacon now. In fact, November will be 20 years uh, that I've been I've been ordained. So I've, uh, I've uh, 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 thank you. I have four amazing children, uh, three daughter, three daughters and a son, including twins, one one girl, one boy, a set of twins. Um, and I, I worked in law enforcement. When I left monastic life, I got to law enforcement and worked there for 23 years. Uh, until I left that 10 years ago. In fact, July 1st uh, of this year is 10 years to the day wow. since I, I transitioned out of my career, my law enforcement career, into speaking and writing full time, which is a whole nother story in it in itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but so so the um, the call to the jacket has been a tremendous joy uh, in my life. Um, and people often ask, what's the greatest part about being a deacon? And they think I'm going to say, you know, having nine television series in EWTN or traveling all around the world. I've been to 23 countries so far wow. preaching the gospel. And they think that's what I'm going to say. But it's actually, you know, those really special moments where, you know, people have skeletons in their closet and they open that door and allow you to come in. You know, when when you when a kid is getting a, a cancer treatment at the children's hospital across from the parish, and and the the child is five years old and they're writhing in pain, and their parents are there and you are there representing the church, uh, to be with those parents in that in those moments. It's when, you know, a, a five month old child dies of crib death, mm-hmm. and the parents ask you, to do the to to uh, preach at the funeral. And to lead the rosary, you know, at the at the uh, the funeral home the night before, and you're trying to hold it together because you've never seen a casket that small before. You know, it's the woman whose husband she's been married for thirty years who's dying at the hospital across the street, and you go to be with her, and you're with her at the moment her husband takes her last breath. I mean, those those are the moments, the great graces of how we get to be in people's lives and how we get to serve the the body of Christ as deacons. Um, that is really the, the, the greatest reward, the greatest fulfillment that, that I've experienced in, in 20 years as a deacon. Well, let me just say thank you for that journey you just took us on. That is incredible. And I want to just call out a couple of things on what you stated for our listeners, because we've got a lot of fathers. We've got a lot of new fathers. Um, we get those questions a lot. I mean, I likewise had a very similar experience to you uh, being an altar boy and and just falling in love with uh, with Christ and falling in love with the church and thinking, I need to look into the priesthood because of this, probably around the same age. And I, however, didn't come from a, a broken family. My dad was was very active in the faith and uh, and never divorced. And so, I mean, just just you're thriving, though, and we can just hear it. And we just we just I just love and I want to call that out for our listeners. Like if your fathers, you know, really discern being active in your in your son's life and in their development, but also, you know, considering the uh, helping them be an altar boy and and to do that well, because, you know, I just that really link and connection that you just brought to us. And then you were in, uh, uh, you were uh, um, a police officer, correct? And, and you, um, wow, and you've been all over the place. This is just, just in, incredible. So thank you for that. I, um, yeah, I'm just, just really appreciative of that. So you wrote a book called um, Behold the Man, A Catholic Vision of Male Spirituality. I have the book. Uh, it's a great book. What inspired you to write that? I feel like 
just felt called in, in your conversation here, uh, this episode going out to, you know, uh, it'll be 10 over 10,000 men that'll listen to this, you know, why, why did you write that book? What did you see in our society that, that caused you that inspiration for you to write that? Yeah, well, John, I mean, for, for me, it, it comes out of personal experience, right? So I talked about, you know, my, my, we're from Barbados. My father was a very popular singer and songwriter and nightclub owner, mm. and he lived like one. Wow. You know, my father had multiple affairs. Um, he has mm. at least 15 other children from other women besides the four of us with my mom that we know of. And that's no exaggeration. I mean, we're able to verify 15, although my relatives say there's more than that, but, but we're able to verify 15. My father was not a man of faith, um, wasn't baptized, never went to church. Um, the only time we ever heard him use God's name was as a curse mm. growing up in our house, and, and he smoked and all that. I mean, so, so not um, a lot of very pleasant memories growing up uh, with my dad. And after they got divorced... Um, you know, and, and this is the way I, I described that that time, Sam and, and John. People say, well, what is it like? Often teenagers say, what is it like to be a child of divorce? Because they're not stupid. They see something's going on in their own house and they're worried that the parents are going to split up. So I tell them the truth. I said, marriage is a beautiful thing. It, it really is. But it's also the cross. And divorce is when the parents put the cross down and the kids pick it up. You know, and that's never a, a, a place you ever want to be in your in your uh, in your marriage. Now, after I discerned out of monastic life, and I was on this course to get married, I almost didn't get married because I was afraid. So I didn't want to end up like my parents did. You know, but there's a couple of things that the Lord taught me. First of all, I am not my dad, right? I, I can make different decisions and different choices because I've chosen to put Jesus Christ first and foremost in my life. So I'm not, I'm, how I act, how I think is not dictated by the culture. It's not dictated by social milieus. Uh, I'm, I put on, as St. Paul says, the mind of Christ, right? I, I focus my life completely on Jesus Christ. And, and so, um, so I was thinking about all of this and then I was asked to do a series for EWTN on male spirituality, because I, I uh, Father Mitch Packwell was my scripture professor in graduate school, oh, and he invited me to be an EWTN. And so I said, what are we going to talk about? Because, you know, you wrote a paper on male spirituality. Why don't you talk about that? And so I did. And it got incredible response. EWTN has never had a show on four men. Um, and they saw the response of my one interview with Father Mitch. So they asked me if I could do a series based on this conversation. I said, I think so. So I wrote an outline, about a 60-page outline that I mm. used, you know, for each of the 13 episodes. So fast forward now, several years later, I, I, I leave my job 10 years ago. I get a call from Mark Brumley at Ignatius Press. Now, Mark Brumley was also an adjunct professor. Uh, I was at the University of Dallas at graduate school. Oh, sure. Um, during the formation for the diaconate. He was an adjunct professor there. And so he called and said, hey, Deacon, I heard you left your job. Do you have time to write a book for us? And I said, well, sure. This is what I do now. <laughs> Why now? And so I think we were talking about what we're going to write about. And, you know, I said, you know, there's no books out there about a theology of Catholic male spirituality. 
And what I mean by that is this. There's some great books out there, right? Because Steve Wood has been writing on male yes. spirituality, but he, about fatherhood or pornography or priesthood or chastity or virtue or uh, those kinds of things. But I could not find a book either written by Pope, Magisterium, nothing that looked at the theology, the underlying theology of, of, of what forms a man as a Catholic man, a, uh, a Catholic male spirituality. Now, tons of Protestant books out there that mm-hmm. talk about a Protestant approach, but what are the, and they're wonderful books. Uh, and a lot of Catholics have read them, right? And, and benefited from them. But I saw it was lacking the focus on a man's life rooted in the sacramental life of the church, most especially the, the, the sacrifice of the, the, the most holy Eucharist and the theology of the cross. And so when, when Mark uh, and I decided to write, you know, to, to explore this uh, male spirituality, I said, okay, the two things I want to focus on are the hermeneutics or the interpretive key that underpins yeah. the whole book are two things. St. Paul's theology of the cross Right, because our Protestant brothers and sisters don't have a crucifix; they have a cross, but yeah. no Christ. Right, and so I want to focus. What does Paul say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I want to know nothing. Saint Paul says, except the cross of Jesus Christ. Right, what does say? Second Corinthians: I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right. So, so, uh, so we, so that was one, and the other one was Saint John Paul II was just an absolute hero of mine, no question, no doubt about it. And in his anthropology, uh, he's written a, a lot about women, right? Mulieris Dignitatem, the yeah. dignity vocation of women, letters to women, um, but he, but not about men. You know, th- there's parts of Familiaris Consortio where he talks about fatherhood. There's Quam Quam Plurius, which is um, uh, written by Pope Leo XIII with John Paul II, well, Redatoris Custos guarded the Redeemer on St. Joseph, mm-hmm. right? But but nothing specifically about an authentic Catholic male spirituality. So I took John Paul II's anthropology, applied it to a male spirituality, united with, with St. Paul's theology of the cross. And that was the kind of the thought process when I was writing this book. Yeah. And so and, and, and so every chapter builds on the chapter that came before. So, so I start off with, uh, you know, what is a male spirituality? Then I look at it from a biblical perspective. Then I look at it from an anthropological perspective, theology of the body, sin, um, reconciliation, all those kinds of things. That I talk about work. And then I look at Ephesians chapter 6, right? Um, uh, the armor of God. So I took, yeah. e- I took the last chapter is each piece of the armor of God, and I apply a, a, a male spirituality principle to each of those pieces of armor so that everything I've written in the book puts flesh on the bone. So it's not just mm. all theory, not just all ideas, but here's how we live it out every day as men of yeah. God. So that was kind of how the book came about. Oh, praise God. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Um, and I know there is such a huge need. And I think even now that your, your book is written and things like that, that there's still um, this, this longing among men for guidance in this area. And so really it's about this point, it's about, telling people about the book and like getting the word out. And like, we, we, I know John and I have recommended it to people. And I just would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast and hasn't read it yet, check it out because there's, there's so much rich content there that will help you 
embrace your vocation as a Catholic man, specifically a Catholic man. Um, so you know what's what's interesting. One of the one of the criticisms that I received because I mean I do read the Amazon reviews, right? I mean yeah. I I don't res- I don't respond to because I don't care. Sure. Um, but 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 one of them said it was too intellectual. So <laughs> so here's the thing. You know the, here's what I think about it. you. I didn't want to water down John Paul II. Yeah. I mean the man's brilliant. He's two. He had two doctoral degrees for goodness sake, and he's a saint. I don't want to water him down. So it's just like lifting weights, right? In order for the muscle to grow, you have to push that muscle in, in, in fact, till it tears, yeah. and then it builds back up in layers. That's how you build muscle. That's how you build strength. That's how you and you build endurance. And so there are parts of the book that's a little bit, you may have to read it a couple times, mm-hmm. you know, but 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 it's just like lifting weights. You Intellectually, you're straining at it. And once you get it, right, because what do you, I want to tear that soul muscle, that heart muscle, yeah. right? So that people see the depth of the beauty. I, I want to elevate the conversation about male spirituality to, to, to another level. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm trying to establish uh, a, a new way to be a man or anything like that. I was trying to elevate the conversation so that it's taken much more seriously. Um, uh, uh, you know, not so much academically, but, but to see that there's some serious things for us to think about as men at every level of our faith life. You know, um, another criticism, people said that it was um, too catechetical. People don't know their faith, for goodness sake. You know, people don't know. They don't even, look, remember, even before, before COVID, 70% of Catholics did not believe that Jesus Christ was present in the Eucharist. That, that's one of the basic foundations of our faith. People don't know their faith. So I wanted to also make sure I'm catechizing men in this book as well. So they're connecting the, the, the stuff, the head with the heart. Yeah. Right. So, so I want to challenge them intellectually so that the head and the heart meet. So now you have a holistic approach to male spirituality. It's not just the head. It's not just the heart. It's a beautiful marriage and synthesis of both. And, you know, that's another thing I was trying to accomplish in the book. So, yeah, there are parts of it that, you know, I didn't want to water it down, but it, but it's not, you know, over, over, so far over your head um, that you can't get it. And that's why I put a lot of the heady stuff in the footnotes. Right. Yeah. So if you really want to go deep, I put I put that into the footnotes. So if you just want to skip the footnotes, you'll still get tremendous benefit from the book for sure. Yeah. In fact, I even <laughs> I was speaking at a college, um, what was it, Southwest Missouri State okay. uh, University. And at, this was a Newman Center. And after the talk, a young lady came up with one of my books, the 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 the, the um male spirituality book, Behold the Man. Yeah. I was like, oh. You, you have my book. She goes, yeah, my dad gave it to me because he wanted me to read it to see what my future husband looks like. <laughs> I was like, what? I, I never thought of using the book that way. You know, and here's a dad who thought, who read the book himself and gave it to his daughter. So she, I was like, wow, I never even thought of using it that way. You know, but, but that's beautiful how men have used this book. I mean, I've, it's it's in about uh, eight countries around the world in study groups. Men are using it, uh, and I've been to these countries. I've been to those study groups yeah. myself. So and so it's humbling when you see men taking what you've done and adapting it to their culture, and then implementing it. You know, in, in their you know. So I've been South Africa, Singapore, Malaysia, um, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Guyana. You know, it's just really humbling. 
to see the response of men around the world. And when I wrote the book, I didn't think, oh, it's going to be around the world. It's going to, I mean, I just thought I want to contribute to this conversation in a, in a serious way. Yeah. And um, I'm just, I'm just grateful to God um, to, to, to be able to do that. Yeah, we are too. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I just want to say to God bless your mother because she instilled a love of the faith in you and look at how many, the ripple effects that that's had, like one, one person's faithfulness, uh, one mother's faithfulness has, has actually led to thousands of lives being touched and changed uh, all over the world. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful reality. Um, and, but I also just want to say too, you know, like, I like that you're challenging men because it is, we need to think, we need to think critically we need to not be caught up by fads and talking points and propaganda and whatever. And that kind of leads to uh, switching gears a little bit to this issue of racism, where it feels like uh, people give up on this issue because they say, that's all it is. You know, it's, it's just political slogans. It's, um, you know, things on t-shirts and like, maybe, maybe in their heart, they feel like there is racism is real. Like I, there is, there are people who've been deeply hurt by it. There's, there's been grievous wounds in our culture, but, but every time I try to engage with this issue, I just get bombarded with, you know, the, the, uh, Marxism or the, the white guilt or like the critical race theory or like, and then they just think, well, I don't want to be a Marxist. Like, I don't want to embrace that. So maybe this issue is just not something to engage with and they just throw it away. But like, we need to think through this carefully. And that's why we wanted to have you on was to get your perspective on this because it is such a, a difficult issue to navigate and without, without seemingly running into these all or nothing black and white thinking approaches where it's just, you either care about it and you, but that also means that you embrace the hundred other issues that seem to be attached to that, or you, don't care at all about it. And it's not even a big deal. It's not, it doesn't enter your awareness. So we don't think about that, you know? So, um, so I guess just, just to get us grounded here, like uh, what is racism to you? Like, like, what does that word even mean in, in your mind? Yeah. So, so um, there's, you have to make a distinction between racism and prejudice. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so prejudice is with regard to race is the, a preconceived notion about someone that's not based on any factual or objective experience, okay? Mm -hmm. So again, a preconceived notion about someone that's not based on any factual or objective experience, okay? That's prejudice. Mm. So racism is prejudice with the added piece that the reason I believe this is because I believe my race is superior to your race. Mm, That's racism. Yeah. So let me let me give you a concrete example. And this is the one I use in the book. Um, I, I was at a parish mission not too long ago. And one of the people found out I did my undergraduate work at the University of Notre Dame. So he came up to me, he goes, oh, you went to Notre Dame. What position did you play? <laughs> okay, so... People would say, that was racist. That was racist. It wasn't racist. It wasn't racist. It was prejudice. Why? He, I can see the capitalist in his mind. Big black guy plus Notre Dame equals football, right? Yeah. That, that's what he was thinking. Oh, look at the, the, the size. Of, you, would, you must have played football. But here's the thing. 
I've never played football in my life. My high school didn't even have football. The Benedictines couldn't afford it. There's no football field or anything. I wrestled for four years in high school. And I had an academic scholarship to Notre Dame. So, I mean, if you put pads on the floor, I have no idea what to do with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so what, it, was, it was a preconceived notion, right? That wasn't, but he didn't know me. He didn't know my experience. He just looked at me and made a judgment. That's prejudice. In order for that statement to be racist, he would have had to have met when he said it. The reason why I'm saying this, that what position did you play? is because the only way a person of color can get into Notre Dame, they're definitely not smart enough. So you must have had an athletic scholarship. That's not what he meant. Because when he found out that I had an academic scholarship and never played football, he was embarrassed. Oh my goodness, I'm a deacon, I'm so sorry. I, you know, so you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. His, 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 his statement was prejudiced, but it wasn't racist. And the problem is today, Sam, and John, is that everybody is lumping everything under the umbrella of racism. You're racist, you're racist, you're, you're not. Stop. We have to stop and think about what is racist and what is not. You yeah. see? So th th that's the first thing I do in the book. We have to define our terms here. Um, so um, obviously, so groups like Ku Klux Klan and uh, you know, white supremacist, group, I mean, other groups like yeah. that, Obviously, are clearly right racist. And the other thing we have to do, we have to make a distinction between institutional racism and people in institutions who are racist. Mm. Right. So, so the United States, of course, used to have institutional racism. I mean, slavery, duh. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. That's clearly a, a mm. system that was accepted as as racist. The Supreme Court yeah. decision. Um, uh, the John, uh, the John F. Sanford decision, where uh, it was uh, enshrined in the Supreme Court of the United States that Black people were property and not human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the postbellum era, you know, we had Jim Crow laws, which, which was the law of the land. So there's no question that there's institutional racism, okay? That, that there there yeah. was institutional racism. But, but now we have to look at what's going on today. Are there still systems in place where there's institutional racism? And the answer is yes. But let, let, so let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So um, in the book, I talk about uh, a story of a Protestant minister who uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who bought a golf course. Now, they didn't buy the golf course <laughs> because they wanted you know, all their church members to play golf. They bought it because they want to control what happens and what's being built around that church. Okay, mm. so in in process of purchasing the golf course, in order the history of the golf course, it was all white. Black people were not allowed. People of color were not allowed. Blah blah blah. And and so uh, when the laws, the segregation laws changed, the civil rights laws changed in the seventies, they had to change the policy of the golf course. So here's what they did: they said that anybody that wants to join has to be um, nominated by someone on the board. And then, uh, then the majority of the board has to approve this person. So one guy on the board thought, oh, this is great. You know, I got a friend who's black, who, you know, he loves playing golf. He'd be a great addition. So he nominated him and every person of color that was brought before the board was rejected. See, so even though the law changed, the institution still 
practice racism. See, that's institutional yeah. racism, as opposed to people in institutions who are racist. For example, you, you cannot say the Catholic Church is racist. Why? The Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ. Mm. <laughs> the church is the <laughs> spotless right. bride of Christ. But there are people in the church who are racist. Yeah. Right? You see? So we have to make that distinction. The church cannot possibly be racist. But there are people. We're all sinners in need of God's mercy. There are people in the church who are racist and practice racist ideology. So, so those are the distinctions that, that, we, that we need to make, that our culture are failing to make. And, and, and here's why this is happening. Um, one of the things I did was I went back and I read um, a lot of uh, uh, writings of Martin Luther King. And he was absolutely spot on in his approach to dealing with issues of race. The problem is this, since he, since he died, there's been a leadership vacuum and a leadership void in the area of race. Right now, we have no Martin Luther King. We have no voice. And because there's this void, you have these individuals and organizations that are trying to fill that void, not by closing the racial divide, yeah. but by trying to introduce ideologies that have absolutely nothing to do with healing racism. Absolutely nothing. But, but they put the veneer, it's like a Trojan horse. The outside yeah. says racism, but inside is a whole other agenda that has nothing at all to do with healing racial division or closing the racial divide. That's the problem. So what I tried to do in this book, which is coming out um, in the spring of next year, Great. Um, what, I, what I tried to do in this book was to say, look, Here's, the, here's racism, here's what's not racism. Here's some example. I talk about the Bible. I go through examples. For example, they always say, St. Paul uh, endorsed a slavery. He says, slaves have to obey their master. Okay, hold on. There's like six different types of slavery that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Which one was Paul talking about? Oh, wow. And I show clearly that he was not talking about chattel slavery. Because over and over and over again, because the people of Israel themselves were slaves. And therefore, the law was very clear in Leviticus and Numbers that they were not to enslave anybody the way that they were enslaved, right? Because remember, they were the mouthpiece for God, you know, but, but, but they, they used one word to describe different types of race. For example, criminals, right, that were serving sentences. Like, for example, we have uh, uh, guys that go and pick up garbage. You see the guys in the jumps that pick up garbage on highways and things like that, right? Yeah. Uh, they would have called that slavery in the Old Testament, right? Or, or you have six kids and you have child number seven and you can't feed child number seven. You would give that child to another family and that child would work as an indentured servant for mm -hmm. that family, right? They would call that slavery. Now, people, indentured servants had rights. They had rights that had to be respected by the person they worked for. In fact, that person could, at the end of their service time, could become a member of that family and have inheritance rights. See, see, these are all things that I had to bring out in the book so people understand that when Paul is talking about slavery, he's not talking about chattel slavery that we, that we think about what happened in this country. And so it's, it's those kinds of distinctions I try to make clear in the book.
Excellent. Oh, I think that's terrific. And I really like that divide between prejudices and racism. And um, <clears throat> I mean, I can see prejudices within my own life, you know. Oh, within, we all have yeah. we, we all have prejudices. Come on. Look, you know, <laughs> when I first started traveling, started going to the South, right? I thought everybody down here eats shrimp and, shrimp and grits. Right. <laughs> because that's what you do. And some people hate shrimp and grits in the South, right? I'm like, wait a minute. I thought, you know, we all have prejudices. We all have that. Why? Because they're formed. Now, we're, we're not born racist. Yeah. We're not born with prejudices. Think about it. You, anecdotally, right? I, my kids, I, I'm married to a German and Irish woman. Amazing woman. Yeah. We have mixed race kids. And so when our kids used to go on the playground, you have Asian kids, Hispanic kids, ja, you know, Japanese kids, black kids. And everybody's playing. The kids don't care. They're just kids <laughs> playing. Like, I'm not going to play with you because you're black. I mean, come on. You don't see that on the plate. But what happens over time, they get exposed to television. They get exposed to other family members where they hear jokes about other races. Mm. They get exposed to social media. They get exposed to all these external stimuli that are bringing in these ideologies and things that they're thinking, hey, wait a minute. You know, this is the way that culture thinks about these types of people. You know, and so you start to form prejudices. You start yeah. to form these ideologies. Sometimes it turns into racism. Sometimes it doesn't. But we all have prejudices, uh, when it comes to race or when it comes to food or when it comes to whatever. We we all have those. We have to yes. recognize and acknowledge that that we that we all have these because that's the only way we're ever going to make any progress. That's right. Not be held in bondage to them and and to grow and and you know and mature. Absolutely, I think that's great. I want to take a moment and shift uh, to this because uh, I have friends and family members even that have kind of adopted this uh, critical race, you know, ideology and this critical race theory. And I know that you have spent a lot of time researching this and getting into this because that one uh, takes a whole nother level of like, it's, you can't avoid it. I've been, I was, I'm white. And so therefore I am a part of the problem. And and it, it leads to this this direct division. And I would say, you know, kind of antagonism between me and any of my best friend in high school was a Hispanic guy <laughs> before that was a black guy. Um, now a black guy, obviously a kid when I was younger. And and like you were just saying, that just really resonated with me. So when we're struggling with uh, talking to our family and friends, um, you know, about critical race theory, I find myself struggling to even relate to them. Uh, and I think part of the reason is, is because I don't fully understand it. And so I would love to take an opportunity here for you to explain to us critical race theory, um, you know, white privilege, these sort of things that are, are pervasive in our society today, so that as us as men, we can better understand that. And then we can hopefully talk uh, through this episode about ways to, uh, again, to bring Christ into that, but also to... Um, engage in conversation in that. So if we could start with some terms there, I think that'd be incredibly helpful for me. Yeah, so um, let, let me explain why I even got into this part in the book. Now, my what I, what I try to do in the book, in, in the middle part of the book, was to talk about ideologies in our, in our contemporary culture that people are trying to bring into the conversation about race that are actually not helpful and actually make things worse. Mm. So I looked at liberate, but, but, but that was not my thing. My original thinking was, okay, people are talking about liberation theology, critical race theory, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay, 
I don't know. A t- I mean, I knew about liberation. I've wrote a paper on liberation theology. So I, I, I understand Father Gutierrez and that whole thing. So yeah. I understood that. But the other two, I said, you know what? Maybe there's something there. I went, I went with an open yeah. mind. Maybe there's something there that we can learn from. Maybe there's something where, where we can connect. And maybe, you know, we, so I said, well, instead of listening to this political pundit or that theologian, I said, let me, let me read for myself. Yes. So I bought the books of the people who developed critical race theory, Richard Delgado, Janine Stefanik, um, uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, uh, so I, I bought their books and I read it and it took me a month to write that. In fact, I was going to put all three of them in one chapter, but I, I realized quickly that each of these individuals are so deep that I have to separate them into three separate chapters. So what I'm hoping doesn't happen is that people focus so much on critical race theory when I'm writing in the book that they think the book is about critical race theory, mm. and it's not. Good. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's about a Catholic response to racism. Yeah. It, but but I, I felt I needed to address the ideologies that people are trying to bring into the church as a as they think is going to help. And it doesn't help at all. So that's where I got the critical. In fact, I'm just going to there's a book coming out by um, by Dr. Ed Fazer um, mm. in the fall that is about critical race theory, the Catholic approach to critical race theory. Uh, I, I, he sent me a review copy of it. I think it's phenomenal. That book is about critical race theory. My book is not. Okay. okay great. So, so, so what I, I tried to address critical race theory specifically, can it help in the discussion to help ameliorate racist ideology within the life of the church? That's what was my approach. So now, in understanding what critical race theory is, so critical race theory doesn't look as uh, as bi- a biological distinction or, or, or cultural differentiation yeah, between people yeah. of races, okay? Yeah. They, they don't look at, you know, a bio, again, biological distinction or cultural differentiation. For them, race is a social construct, mm. all right? So race is something that's constructed, that's not by natural law, it's something that's constructed by the culture, okay? And where people that are not of people of color, so basically white people, yeah. Um, uh, develop hierarchical structures, and um, uh, uh, that that oppress people of color, right? So that's their understanding of race. So what what critical race theory tries to do is to liberate people from these oppressive hierarchical institutional structures through major societal and political change. Mm-hmm. Okay. So just from that piece of it, you could already see the problem from a Catholic perspective. Sin is personal and societal, okay? Mm-hmm. But Jesus didn't count, count, Jesus came to, to bring salvation to individuals, to conquer sin and death with the power of love. Right. But you don't see any of that. For, for, for critical race theory, uh, the way they, they see making change, these major societal and organizational and structural political changes is through conflict, struggle, and discord, mm. right? Where does that thinking come from? Okay, follow me here, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make this as easy as possible. Critical race theory comes out of critical legal theory 
from the 1970s. Okay, and, and that mm. looked at what okay. I talked about before. Even though the laws have changed, there's still underlying racism within institutions. So it looked at the legal ramifications of that. Okay, nothing, nothing wrong with that. That was fine. But that came out of critical theory from the 1920s, which comes out of uh, actually Marx and Freud, right? Not Marx and Engels, but mm. Marx and Freud, dialectical materialism. Okay. Wow. So, so, okay. Let me, so, so basically what, um, what Freud and Marx did, they took, um, they took this idea of uh, the, the dialecticalism, which basically says that um, the Hegelian dialectic, right? So Hegel came up with this dialectical approach to, to, to thought. So here's what's his thing. And, and he applied it basically to hard sciences, right? So you have um, a thesis and a counter antithesis and the, the tension and the conflict and the struggle between the thesis and the antithesis leads to a new synthesis, hmm. okay? So what Marx and Freud did was to take that Hegelian model and apply it to psychology and to sociology and to political theory. Wow. See, Hegel had not done that. So what they did, so, so again, so what did Freud do, which, which eventually became communism? You have the proletariat, the thesis, the bourgeois, the antithesis, and the tension and conflict and struggle between those two lead to a new synthesis, which is what? Materialistic or atheistic communism. Yes, yeah. You see? So, so, so that's what, and Freud did the same thing in the area of psychology. And so this, the, the, the effect that that's had now is that the hermeneutic or the underlying principle for critical race theory is the way you fix things is by tension, conflict, struggle, and discord. Mm. That is not the way Jesus Christ came to fix problems in the world. He wanted to bring people together, yeah. not to tear people apart. So, so by its very name, and I, and I go through the five basic tenets of critical race theory, oh. and I explain how each of the, again, these are tenets brought out by the people who develop critical race theory, not, not by Geek and Harold. Yeah. And so I said, okay, so I look at them, I said, okay, let's look at it from a Catholic perspective. Can we accept this or not? And the answer is clearly no. So it's nothing personal. It, so I don't do ad hominem attacks. I don't do personal yeah. attacks against the people who develop critical race theory. I'm attacking the actual position, what they teach, which, which, I believe has no has no place at all in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. But now it may be useful for other disciplines, but it has no use for us as Catholics. And so you have people that try to bring this thinking and bring this ideology into the church, and, yeah. and they're doing it because they have, I guarantee they have no idea what this really is. They don't. Yeah. They just think, oh, this is the latest new thing. We have to white, you know, we're white, so we have to. You know, help. We have to be less racist and have less white guilt. We have to bring critical race theory in. <laughs> Wrong answer. Right? It, it is yeah. not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer, Amen. and that's why I spend the whole last part of the book doing, giving specific details of how we can actually. How I think the Catholic Church. I believe this with all my mind and heart. The Catholic Church can be the leader 
in this area of race. You know, I personally am sick and tired of the Catholic Church always coming from behind on serious societal issues, right? Like marriage, for example. And a whole debate about marriage was going on. What did we do? We did nothing. We said nothing. Why? Partly because um, the bishops were still reeling from the sex abuse scandal. Yeah. So they lost tremendous moral credibility because who are you to tell us about abortion? Who are you to tell us about what marriage is when you're abusing kids? You know, I see. So, so what, what, did, what did we do? We backed off and said, okay, well, let's talk about safe things like the environment and migrants and immigrants. Important issues. They are important. I'm an immigrant myself. Okay. Those are important issues. But kids are not leaving the church over immigration, not leaving the church over Mother Earth. They're leaving the church because they don't know Jesus Christ. Right. They don't have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. That's what we need to be focusing on. And I believe that in this area of race, that we can actually take the lead, that the society can learn from us as Catholics how we can actually face this issue head on, have those difficult conversations, do it at the parish level, and really begin to build you know, uh, a society yes. of, of love and trust that what Martin Luther King wanted to do and, uh, and in fulfillment of the teachings of what Jesus Christ calls us to do. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And that is is totally possible. And I, I, I love that call to the church to take the lead on this issue. I'm curious, though, you know, you, you mentioned that Jesus Christ had a way of bringing people together. But it defied expectations. You know, there's among the Jews too. There's this 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 uh, suspicion of the Samaritans because they were kind of mixed race, mixed beliefs. You know, the religion was kind of muddled up with different different beliefs. And and then there, of course, there's the Roman oppressors who who were kind of um, uh, it, it, you know oppressing the Jewish people in that time. And so so I think when with the messianic longing, there was this kind of expectation that the Messiah would come in. And he would almost do this like Hegelian thing and like stir up discord, stir up conflict, call people to arms, pick up your swords. You know, we're going to battle. We're going to purify, you know, the land. And like, and, and so there was, it's just fascinating to see though, how Jesus turned all those expectations on their head. And um, this idea of power, this is like really big thing. And I think in a lot of Marxist thinking or, or and even critical race theory, this idea of power. Well, you know, and power essentially is just a, is synonymous with abuse, it seems like, in, in any kind of Marxist ideology. But, yeah, we see Christ who says, all power is given me you know, on heaven and on earth. And, like, he had all the power. And yet, what did he do with that? So so could you kind of address how did Christ deal with this issue uh, in his own time? And, you know, maybe how some of the saints dealt with it subsequently. But then how what can we learn from that kind of as the church perhaps thinks about taking the lead on this issue, answers that call uh, that the Holy Spirit may be extending to the church right now. Yeah, Jesus taught love, mercy, and forgiveness, okay? Because you're right. Uh, 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 even the apostles themselves thought that Jesus was going to be a political leader, right? That's why Judas sold him out. When he saw that Christ wasn't going to be this, you know, this uh, pick up arms and fight against the Romans and take back, you know, what was rightfully belonged to Israel, he sold them out. Remember, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out his sword. Okay, it's time. 
and cut off the guy's ear, right? Because he thought, okay, this is the time of, of the insurrection. This is the time we take things back. Even after the resurrection, they said, the apostles said, remember, is this the time that you're going to destroy the kingdom? <laughs> they, they, they didn't get what Jesus was all about, yeah. right? And, and over and over again, Jesus defied expectations. You know, for example, the woman caught in adultery, okay? Why did they bring the woman to Jesus? They tried to trap him because Jesus is teaching love, mercy, and forgiveness. So if he says, you know, because it wasn't the, 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 uh, the, the penalty for being caught in adultery, it was being stoned to death, right? So they brought this woman, so she was caught in the act of adultery, what should, we, what should we do with her? If he says stone her, they said they're going to point out the contradiction. Wait a minute, you're teaching love, mercy, and forgiveness. And now you're going against your own teaching by saying to take this woman's life? But if he says, don't stone her, you can't be the Messiah because the law says that any that caught in the act of adultery, you're, you're going to be stoned to death. So they think, we got him. We got him. What does Jesus do? He bends down and write. We don't know what he wrote. He wrote something in the dirt. Okay? Now, this is just Deacon Howell's opinion. This is not church teaching because no one knows. It's not reported anywhere what Jesus actually wrote on the ground. I think he wrote, where's the dude? <laughs> now, why do I say that? In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, it says clearly both the man and the woman caught in adultery are stoned to death. Not just the woman. People think it's, oh, just the women were stoned to death. No, the man and the woman, both. So, but they only brought the woman to Jesus. But they say she was caught in the act of, the very act of adultery. I mean, she was... With somebody, how come they didn't bring him? If they're going to get Jesus on a point of the law, the law says both. Why did they only bring her? I think Jesus was, was writing, was pointing out the contradiction of their own position. Right? That's what I think. That's yeah, just me. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> See, but, but, that, but that was the message that Jesus brought constantly over and over again. The woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. They didn't even share utensils right. with them or anything. But yeah, he says, give me a drink. First of all, he's talking to a woman alone. Then he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Then he's asking to share utensils. I mean, he's, he's over three here. <laughs> but, but, but Jesus, again, said, look, none of that matters. Yeah. What matters is this person standing in front of me. This person who's a sinner in need of God's mercy. Because he pointed out to her, oh yeah, the guy you with, you, you ain't married to him. In fact, he's like your fifth husband. And she's like, oh dang, this dude's a prophet. He just called me out, you know? And, and, and see, it's through that, that's what Jesus came to bring. To, to and what he said to, to woman caught in adultery, go, does anybody else judge you? No, go and sin no more. Stop doing what you're doing. So he called people out, he, he brought to attention those things that were separating them from God's love. And then he brought God's love and mercy into their life. He brought healing into their life. Right? And, and so the way I end the book is to get to your point, John and, and Sam, is with the, the, the uh, Good Samaritan parable. Right. So here you have, uh, they're, they're on the road to uh, Jericho. Now, that road is still exists to this day, by the way. Uh, in fact, it's, it was, was interesting where that road is, is it's, it's very isolated and um, it's very, you know, hilly. And so it's a perfect place for a robber to mug somebody, right? So people would have known that that was a place where robbers, that's why Jesus 
um, talked about it. But it's also, if you look at Psalm 23, the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, that's where that road is located. Mm. And I, I was just there a couple months ago when I was in Israel. And you got, I got a chance to see it. It's, it's actually quite amazing. And so the guy gets mugged, Samaritan guy, laying at the side of the road. The priest walks by, does nothing. He was probably walking the other way on his way to the temple in Jerusalem. Mm. Now, they weren't supposed to touch the corpses or the, you know, the blood of anybody except family, except family members, corpses of family members is one exception. But so the, the guy didn't want to, I'm not going to, I don't care about this dude. First of all, he's a Samaritan, so I don't want to have anything to do with him anyway. Plus he's bloody. I'm not going to touch him, you know, yeah. fend for himself. Then the Levite, who's the deacon, uh, I hate that part. <laughs> yeah, uh, he walks by, same thing, ritually important, he's not going to touch him. But here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Why didn't they call the police? Why didn't they tell somebody else on the way, hey, you know what? There's this dude down here. You know, I, I'm not going to touch it, but you may want to, you know, you may want to help him. It, they did nothing. That, that, that part gets me. And the other part um, uh, is this. You know, Jesus knew the situation was going on with the Samaritans. Remember, but how many times did Jesus go over to the Gentiles to preach to them? Remember that the guy that was in the cemetery with no clothes on? Mm -hmm. um we drove the demons into the pigs and they ran off the cliff i mean so jesus did not shy away from 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 bringing the good news to the people the gentiles it's interesting when jesus does a miracle he tells the jews don't say anything to anybody but when he does something for the gentiles go tell everybody yeah <laughs> you see? exactly so it's, it's a different approach here so so jesus understood all of this when he was telling the parable all of a sudden uh, this samaritan comes by the Samaritan sees the Jewish guy the side of the road, and he has mercy. And now, when Jesus asks at the end of this, right, we all know how the parable goes. At the end, he goes, mm -hmm. which one of these guys was the one who helped them? And remember the guy said, the one who showed him mercy. Yeah. He, he couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan helped him. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because <laughs> that's how much they hated him. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Okay, so that showed the disdain that they have with Samaritans. When Samaritan dude comes along, sees the guy's side of the road, picks him up, takes him to the hotel, gives him, I think it was three coins, but I think they would have denarii. So denarii would have been two days' wages. So he gave him enough money to take care of him, heal, you know, take care of his wounds and stuff. He goes, look, if this ain't enough, I, I'll get you on the way back until the innkeeper. He showed the guy. So Jesus was, was establishing a new standard of holiness. That holiness and mercy and love is not just extended to people of your race. Mm -hmm. This is extended to everyone whose heart is open to truth. And what is truth? Truth is not a philosophical construct. Truth is not an ideology. Truth is a person. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a dynamic relationship with the living God. That's what Jesus was, was talking about in that parable. So he was saying, go likewise and do the same. Mercy is not just for you. It's not just for people of your race. You are to extend love and mercy to all people whose hearts are open to receiving the truth and love. And not even them, but also your enemies. Remember Jesus, love your enemies and pray for them. Yeah. I, I mean, something we can't even do that now. I mean, how many masses were said for Osama bin Laden? 
Right. After 9-11. Well, we have to pray for Osama. Let's just do offer a math for Osama bin Laden for his conversion. No, well, let's be real. How many people actually did that? Did that because right. this guy killed 3,000 people. You know, I mean, so it, it's hard. What Jesus asked us to do is hard. It's difficult, but it's the gospel. And that's the point of my book. We have to have these hard, difficult conversations. We have to face our own sin. We're all sinners who need God's mercy. We have to face our own prejudices, maybe our, even our own feelings of racism. Acknowledge that, that we are sinners, and turn to Jesus. Yeah. And I outline, just based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, the Catholic faith, how we can actually bring racial healing uh, to our faith and ultimately to our world. Amen. Well, thank you so very much. I appreciate that. And as is always the case with these episodes, as we just, you know, scratch the surface of all the stuff that we could possibly talk into, but that's uh, the nature of them. And so I'm just so grateful. So I want to give you just a moment, though, let people know where they can learn more about you, Deacon Harold, and where uh, they can, um, you mentioned the book's coming out next year. However, we will put in the show notes, uh, you know, locations for your website and uh, your other book on masculinity and stuff. But if you could let us know a little bit, let those who are listening on uh, podcast know where to find you, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah, I made it real easy for everybody. DeaconHarold.com. <laughs> ah, that's it. I mean, if, if you if you scroll down, you see all my social media. You, in fact, you'll scroll down, you'll see all the books. I have five books. They're all uh, pictured there. You just click on it and, and you can order the book, right? Either through, uh, well, I did it through the publisher because I'm not a huge fan of Amazon. But uh, right. but, but, but you can could, you could order the books through the publisher um, by clicking on, on, the, uh, on each book. And, and buy the book through the through the publisher. Or you can get on your favorite Catholic bookstore. You know, we got to support our Catholic bookstores, our brick and mortar stores. You know, yeah. they're they're having a hard time competing with the online stuff. But we, you know, I try wherever city I go to, I try to go to a Catholic bookstore and, and support them. So yeah. uh, also go to your Catholic bookstore to pick up a copy of the book as well. Well, thank you. Well, thanks so much, Deacon Harold. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I look forward to getting the book and reading it and kind of getting more in-depth knowledge on this issue. Uh, and I think it is so relevant. And uh, we thank you for your, your passionate uh, and, and intelligent comments on this. It's, it's, been, it's been great. So, uh, but as we like every to end every episode, uh, John? Be a man, be a saint. <laughs>